Welcome back to The Headache Situation, which is a series of podcasts brought to you by the Michigan Headache and Neurology Clinic in East Lansing. This is free of any influence or sponsorship from any drug company, insurance company, or hospital system. As some of you may know, I am Edmund Messina, neurologist, headache specialist, and headache sufferer. If you're offended by sarcasm or reality, please leave now. I do believe I know what I'm talking about because this is experiential and I'm giving you resources where you can check it. I'm a fiercely independent neurologist who has been observing changes in the healthcare situation for many years. I'll give you my honest impression of what's going on in healthcare and how to protect yourself from scams or worse, filtered through my own perception forged over the past 40 years of experience. I see many frustrated patients who have had bad experiences in the past. Headache medicine is not easy because it touches on many aspects of the patient, including detailed evaluations of their neurological, psychological, general medical, and sleep histories. Successful treatment of headache disorders requires time and patience, and this cannot be accomplished in seven-minute sessions. This episode will help keep you from seeing doctors who are burned out, those who are not dedicated to helping you because of external corporate pressures. The specialty of headache medicine is a small one. Only about 500 of us are certified by the UCNS Specialty Board. That stands for the Unified Council of Neurological Subspecialties. We are mainly neurologists who took the specialty board exam, but remember, there are also a lot of good neurologists out there who can treat headaches competently, as long as they spend enough time with you, and that is an important part of this discussion. Keep listening, and you will see what I mean. I lifted parts of this from my Cynical Doctor podcast series, so it may sound a little cynical to you. Good. Also, because this comes from the Cynical Doctor series, any references I make to specific web links or websites can be found on the Cynical Doctor website at www.thecynicaldoctor.com or www.cynicaldoctor.com. It's just me on a different channel. So, first, the obligatory disclaimer. Remember to read this disclaimer on the Headache Situation website. Basically, all of our presentations are intended to be informational and educational and not intended to replace your doctor, physician's assistant, or nurse practitioner. Do not make any health decisions based on the information discussed here. Talk to your doctor. Okay, now, down to business. I want to give you guidelines on how you can find a good way to get good health care. And if you have a good doc already, it'll help you appreciate them more. So this time around, I'm talking about burnout. It's a sad thing, and I, I feel for those of my colleagues who have it. But I also feel for the patients who may suffer because of it. It's an important topic because it compromises health care. And I'll show you why I say this. And it may make you fear what's going on around you. I'll show you how you can find people who are not burned out. And this is very important because your survival may depend on it. First of all, I'll tell you, I'm in a unique position. I'm not burned out, but about 50% of my colleagues are. I feel guilty sometimes when I fill out surveys from the American Academy of Neurology, the American Headache Society, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the AMA, and all these other organizations that I belong to because I don't have any burnout symptoms but half of my colleagues have some form of burnout. Medical Economics, the journal, surveyed 1,200 physicians, and 92% of them felt some sort of burnout at some time or other, and 68% felt the burnout at the time they filled out the questionnaire. Of these docs, 13% were seeking counseling, and 73% 
That's 73% of these doctors considered quitting medicine. Not a good thing, and I think there's a way to fix it. I'll get into that later. First, let's go into why it is the way it is, and perhaps more importantly, how it should be, perhaps how it used to be. Toward the end of this rant, I'll give you some ideas on how you can pick a doctor that doesn't fit these characteristics. So what's the deal with medicine? I love medicine. I dreamed to be a doctor, and my dream came true. The practice of medicine is the best job in the world. Stimulating, we're helping other people. It's not a job, I guess. It's really a calling. There was a Canadian doctor in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s called Sir William Osler. He was Canadian, but he did a lot of work in England, so that's how he got to be Sir. He was a genius. He was a wonderful doctor. He helped start the medical programs at Johns Hopkins University in the United States. He started the concept of specialty residencies, and he was very, very big on bedside instruction. It revolutionized American medical training and he invented the whole concept of medicine being an art. In fact, his quote is, quote, the practice of medicine is an art, not a trade, a calling, not a business, a calling in which your heart will be exercised equally with your head, end quote. He had it right, and I really feel very, very strongly about what he had said. My generation of doctors felt that way, and we didn't worry about life, work, balance, or any of that other stuff. In fact, here's a shameless plug for a book I wrote a few years ago. It's my experiences as a medical student and as a medical intern in Chicago in all the inner-city ghetto hospitals. That's where medicine was best taught in those days. The book is called The Spattered White Coat, and it's true anecdotes about the forces that formed a young doctor, in this case, me. But it'll give you an idea of how we were so idealistic and how in love with medicine. We worked hard, we were abused with our schedules, but it was us and the nurses against disease. It's a good story, and I think it'll show people what it is that makes a doctor tick. Anyway, that's the story there, and the link is on the Cynical Doctor website. When I started out, doctors were usually in private practice. Uh, We were all independent. The main worry was about the patients. No one was micromanaging us. Those of us that were in academia also had a noble calling because academics determined people's advancement. It was based on their value as an academic doctor, not about how much money they generated in grants or in patient billings. It was a finer time to be living. Uh, The so-called good old days, it's changed, and a lot of it has ruined many of the people. And these are the people I call burned out. I don't have bitterness towards my colleagues who are burned out, but I feel bad for them. And I know they feel bad about it as well. It's an ethical challenge for them, and I'll explain why later. But I'll also explain how this cannot be good for you if you're the patient. Here's how it came to be. Over those years, regulations, especially through the insurance industry and government rules, started putting more demand upon physician documentation and all these crazy rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do. Doctors are supposed to spend our time with patients, either at bedside in the hospital or sitting across from our patients in the clinic and talking with the patients, not with computers. The era has evolved since the 80s, mostly in the last 20 years, where electronic medical records are forced upon employed physicians and many who are self-employed. The electronic record although it sounded like a great idea in the beginning, has turned out to be a millstone around the neck of most physicians. I am not one of those physicians. In 1983, I had completed writing a complete electronic medical record program, and I was the only one that I know who was using such a thing. I convinced another couple hundred docs to use my program, and it made us more efficient. 
and better at what we did. Uh, over the years, companies have taken these ideas and, and corporations have built massive empires which now rule the electronic record world. Hospitals force their doctors to use these record programs, which basically are written by accountants, not by clinicians. I continue to use my electronic record that I've written. I have a wonderful full-time programmer who has made it better and better and better over the last few decades, and it meets our needs. It is not a millstone. It is an asset. But I think I'm the only one who can say that. The docs I know of who work for these organizations have to see patients all day long. And somehow, at the end of the day, in the evenings, maybe in their pajamas, they are documenting their visits. For the life of me, I can't imagine how people can remember 10 hours later what the patient told them in the office. I gather that some of these records may not be particularly accurate. I know when I read notes out loud to my patients who come into my office, they'll often tell me, I never said that, they never did that. So accuracy is an issue. Oddly, people do research based on acquired electronic record data. So you know how valuable that research really is. Garbage in, garbage out. But what bothers a lot of the docs is the lack of autonomy. We are supposed to be independent knight errants on a mission to help patients. We're not supposed to have some idiot tell us how many questions to ask for every particular problem and what to document. Common sense, which is pretty common among physicians who, after all, were smart enough to get into medical school and get through medical school. But people who perhaps weren't smart enough to take science in college are their bosses. I know this will anger the people who didn't take science in college, but I mean, really, doctors know how to be doctors. Non-doctors don't know how to be doctors. The declines in reimbursement have forced a lot of physicians to shorten their office times with each patient, and this is sad as well. These doctors are overwhelmed by the need to see a lot of people in a day and to document the heck out of each visit so they can get reimbursed by some crooked, and I mean crooked, insurance company or some inept Medicare or government program. There, now you know how I feel about it. So how can you tell what's a burnout you know, like I said, there's about a 50% chance that your physician is burned out. But wait, who usually is the burned out doctor? I think it's more common among primary care physicians because they tend to be employed physicians where most of the subspecialists, at least those that I know, are still independent, like the ophthalmologists, the rheumatologists, occasional neurologists like myself, cardiologists. Many are still self-employed, so they are not being forced by some business person to jump through certain hoops. But the primary docs went through a phase, and I'll talk about that in a moment, where they somehow felt obliged to sell their practices to some hospital. So I think that's why mostly the burned out docs, large percentage of them are the primary care physicians. And also primary care physicians outnumber the other specialties. Now, a lot of the same pressures are on the private specialists, such as myself. I mean, we worry about getting paid for our services and those dwindle every year. They become less and less and less, unless you're greedy and do crooked things, which again, it's not in my Hippocratic oath to do that. It's my opinion that the greedy docs are the ones that are going to complain the most about these declining fees because they're the ones who are trying to really clean up in medicine. But the word for burnout, I, I think it might be really a moral injury. It's injuring these poor doctors who started out idealistic and now are forced to jump to corporate drumbeats. So how can you tell if your doc is burned out? Well, these docs are usually stressed out they're in a hurry, and they're driven by administrators or some micromanager with less education standing outside the exam room door with a watch. 
I know of one doc who actually was fired from her position because she took time to wash her hands between patient visits, and they felt that that was a waste of time, this particular hospital did. The symptoms of burnout are apparent to patients. They see that the person is, is somewhat remote, face buried in a laptop or a tablet rather than talking to the patient, and they're clicking and clicking and clicking because basically they are now reduced to data entry clerks. These docs are often not kind. They become unkind. They become impatient. I'm not asking you to feel sorry for them. I'm asking you to feel sorry for yourself. Compassion is a big part of medicine. As Dr. Osler said, our hearts are part of our brains when we deal with patients. Your doctor should be willing to go to bat for you and fight against stupidity in the system, but many will not do so because they don't want to get fired. For example, many hospitals that I know of in Michigan, where I practice, have their doctors sign an employment agreement, which is interesting. In this agreement, they are compelled to send patients within the hospital's financial network. If the person needs a scan or needs surgery or labs or whatever, even if it's inferior at that hospital, the doc is obliged to send the patient to those services unless the patient says, no, no, I want to be sent down the road to another place. The docs don't voluntarily say, you know, it's up to you. What they say is, I'm going to send you for a scan in the building. The question you should ask your physician always, if they make any recommendations for any testing or any referrals to other, other docs or other specialists, is, would you send your mother or your child there? Honestly, they need to look you in the eye and tell you, well, yeah, and you got to read them. They are forced, literally, by contract. It's a direct conflict with the Hippocratic Oath where we swear to speak and think on behalf of our patients for the good of our patients, and the corporate contract does not account for that. It forces them to be a cog in a big wheel, which produces money, which ends up as really, really high executive salaries for the administrators. So the question is, is your doc willing to fight with the insurance companies for prior authorization? A lot of clinics don't do that because it takes time and it cuts in their billable hours. So when a patient is not getting the proper amount of time with their physician, you got to suspect that either they're greedy or they're being compelled by some hospital to run you through as quickly as possible. Some people call this the McDonaldization of medicine. Patients are not being fully evaluated because corners have to be cut. So remember, like I said, we are in a calling. We are different from business people. We cannot, with a clear conscience, violate our oath every time we see a patient. We are supposed to put our patient's needs above all else. But over time, that priority has eroded in the face of economic drivers. It's a calling, and honestly, I illustrate this in my book, Shameless Plug, The Spattered White Coat. Okay, so these docs, including me too, were forced to make excessive documentation for every visit. And the purpose of the documentation is really not in any way to help patients. It's to allow the insurance company to find excuses to not pay for the visit. I know there's one particular insurance company throughout Michigan where the medical director is a failed physician. Well, not the ultimate medical director, but one of the people in charge of reviewing billings and approvals for testing and such. It's a failed doctor and uh, someone who doesn't really even understand the subtleties of a case. A lot of people, when they go see their primary doc, they watch the doc either data enter or sit across the room from the computer and they have a scribe. Now, a scribe, to me, is a joke. Uh, a scribe is a medically untrained person who knows how to use the computer program and will click things based on what the doctor is saying or doing with the patient. 
if the computer program is that good, why do you need a scribe to be the interpreter, so to speak, for the doctor? Surely the doctor is smart enough to know how to use a computer program, badly written as it may be. But when you have a scribe, you're not even looking at your screen. When I'm interacting with my patients, I've got the EMR there, but I'm using it as a tool. Like if I want to try a new medicine on a patient, I want to instantly look at all previous meds that patients ever had and whether they're allergic to them or intolerant to them, or I want to see their problem list to make sure that whatever I'm going to prescribe is not contraindicated. I don't know how it works with a scribe. How can you possibly be accessing all this information? or review your previous notes, or look at results from the lab, or the x-ray department, or whatever. I I don't see how it works with a scribe. Maybe it's my ignorance, but to me it sounds like a pretty bad idea. Over all the years, liability has remained a threat to all doctors. But this is magnified when the insurance doesn't pay for a test that the doctor knows they need for the patient. For example, if you suspect someone has a brain aneurysm, which is a blood vessel which could burst and kill you, you have to order the test and it has to be often pre-approved by the insurance company, depending on the policy. But some of these insurances require prior authorization, it's called, by which they look at the record and they decide whether you're making a good call or not on ordering this test. It's not good enough that you're ordering a test to rule out a potentially life-threatening condition. And if they deny it, then you're allowed to have a so-called peer-to-peer discussion with the insurance company doctor. Now, I've pointed out to them numerous times until my throat was sore that this is not my peer, and God knows their paycheck is being written by an insurance company who does doesn't want to pay for the test. These are not often good encounters, and usually we get what we want, but it takes about 20 or 30 minutes of being on hold and hearing really bad recordings until the doc is finally online, and I could have seen one or two patients, maybe one anyway, in the time that was wasted trying to talk to some ninny at the insurance company. Anyway, prior authorization is a horrible thing, and every doc in existence hates it in the United States. But Some of these poor docs, they document their work after hours, like I said, and I honestly think that the records that they generate are not going to be accurate, and I don't know how research will be accurate. And I often read the notes to my patients from their other doctors, and it'll say things like, patient was counseled on proper dietary management. And I'll say to the patient, so did they do any dietary counseling? And they'll say, nope, I have no idea what you're talking about. A lot of times I read hospital notes to the patients where I describe what they wrote as their neuro exam, for example, and the patient will say, no, in fact, they couldn't get me up to walk because I'm unable to walk, have not walked in years, and I'll show them the note from the hospital that says, gait, normal. So it's dirty out there, and you got to find a doc that'll be a pain in the ass like I am and willing to stand up against these people. We need more autonomy. We need to be able to take care of our patients, and we don't need all these idiots to get in our way. We need to be compassionate, and we need to be left alone. It's not happening. And a lot of the micromanagement comes from the so-called pharmacy benefit managers, which are groups that are hired by insurance companies to not give you your medicines. They'll have what they call a formulary, and they may have tiers in the formulary where it's based on what kind of behind-the-scenes deals that that insurance company has with the pharmaceutical company. And they'll try to force you to, to use certain medicines, even if they're not as appropriate as the one that you're prescribing or not as safe. And again, we have to fight with them. We have to talk to their so-called medical people. It's, it's a pain. And this affects me, certainly, but, you know, I take it in stride. But in doctors and other clinics, I know that they probably get in trouble if they end up talking to these insurance companies too much. So basically, a lot of people are being forced to prescribe things that may not be the best choice for that patient. So the big picture, back again to the same idea here about burnout and docs that have been ethically challenged. 
The basic concept is a basic one in, in medicine. I think I learned it the first day of medical school, and that's you treat the patient, not the disease. Now, to treat the patient, you got to look at the whole patient. You got to at least know what's going on. Yes, I am a specialist, but I want to know if there's a cardiac problem or if the person is throwing up constantly and they can't hold my seizure meds down or if they have heart problems where I can't use certain medicines. I got to know all about the patient. There's no shortcut. It's not like you have a big toe and you're a big toe specialist. Even then, you got to know why their big toe is giving them trouble. They have cancer, they have diabetes, whatever. We got to know. Everything's connected. Patients tell me all these horror stories. When they go to their primary doc, they're told, you have one question, choose wisely. And if the patient says, but I have more than one problem, then they're told, our clinic's policy is that you must make another appointment to discuss it. So I ask you, oh listener, someone comes into the doctor and says, you know, I have chest pain and I'm short of breath. And my left arm gets paralyzed from time to time. Who decides which is more important? The patient doesn't know what's more important. They could be having a stroke. They could be having a heart attack. They could, they could have thrown a clot to their lung. The doctor's not going to know what's more important because they don't have any information because the patient's not allowed to tell them the whole story. It's a sad situation. And I, as a subspecialist, I often make diagnoses outside of neurology and end up sending them to other specialists, like the cardiologist. Or I can't tell you how many people with diabetes that I've uncovered just with routine blood work, which has been overlooked. Looked. It's a big problem, and that's a, ba a bad sign when you're being told that you got to limit your discussion with the doctor. No doctor can practice medicine without knowing about the whole patient. It's just impossible to do a good job anyway. You could do a bad job, and you could bill just as much for a bad job as a good job, which is what the hospitals probably don't mind. And I guess, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I guess technically, if you do a really bad job taking care of a patient, maybe they end up in the hospital more. Again, that's sad and horrible and gallows humor. So the question is, why are these bad things happening? Why is it going so badly? Now, we're living in a time when the little medical centers are being taken over by the big ones, the big fish eating the little fish, and bigger fish are eating the big fish. None of these changes have ever really, in my experience in the last bunch of years, have ever seen improvement of patient care with all these corporate takeovers. If anything, they get worse because they drive out good docs. They end up hanging on to those who apparently don't care. So basically, you look at these poor docs, and again, I'm not blaming, you know, if any of these listen, if any of you are listening who are primary care docs who are hospital employees, I'm not blaming you. God knows. I know that med school is expensive, and when you get out of medical school, you have massive student debt, usually. Don't get me started on how much fat there is in medical schools and why it's so overpriced, like everything else in the university. I don't want to get started on that one. But I do believe that the graduates who come out of medical school with huge student debt end up having to take jobs from these medical centers in order to get coverage of their student debt, maybe get student debt forgiveness as part of the uh, incentive to work there. It's a sad situation. I thankfully got through med school on a scholarship at University of Illinois in Chicago, and I didn't have student debt. Crazy to he even hear that today, but I was lucky. So what is the burnout situation? It's a broken healthcare system is what it is. And a lot of people are making a lot of money and it ain't the docs. Honest doctors aren't rich. So keep that in mind. 
But corporate docs get in trouble for spending too much time with a patient, and their time is usually spent worrying about data entry and running people through so the hospital can make more money. Now, again, you'll see, in if you read my Spattered White Coat book, I talk about how much time we spend at bedside, because you don't know a patient unless you spend time with them. You can't be squinting at a computer screen out on the nursing station. you got to be at bedside. Current studies have shown that the average resident in training spends a fraction of the time that they need to spend at bedside, or in their clinic, a fraction of the time is spent with actually eye-to-eye conversational contact. There's a therapeutic relationship between patient and physician, and business people don't understand that. They only understand volume, market, share, profit. They don't understand that there's a warmth that develops between doctors and patients. They don't get that. So the traits which make you a good doctor, in my opinion, is when you have therapeutic relationships and you're caring, and people can tell that you're caring, the bean counters view these as negative things. These are not good things because they take too much time. It's a joke, in my opinion, when they talk about so-called nonprofit hospitals. You know, a long time ago, hospitals used to be benevolent organizations started by different religious groups or communities that needed a hospital and everybody would pitch in. And even in my earlier time in practice, you know, the docs, we were, we were all involved in the running of the hospitals. The medical staff would vote about stuff and, you know, where to spend if there was any surplus where we wanted to expand the intensive care unit or buy more incubators or whatever. Now it doesn't work like that. There are bonuses given to these executives that make 20 times as much as they used to make when physicians were running medical centers. And I don't mean physicians with an MBA who never practiced medicine. I mean practitioners, you know, the so-called, you know, citizen soldier, where we all were on all the committees and we knew what was going on because our fingers were on the pulse. We were part of the hospital. And I can't even guess how much time I spent on all these different committees, and I wanted to be, and we all did. It was our hospital. So this idea of a nonprofit hospital is a bit of a joke. They don't pay taxes, but they make massive profits redistributed into things that make more money. And some of these administrators, which now they call CEOs or COOs or all these other business words, they're making, in some places, 30 and $40 million a year. Now, that's crazy. These are people who don't have any medical knowledge. All they know is how to make money. Actually, their main skill is how to convince a hospital board that they're worth that much. That's probably their gift. The idea is an ethical compass is being put in the drawer, and it's taking its toll on these doctors. In recent years, doctors are retiring at a younger age than they ever did. And it's not because they made more money. It's because they just can't wait to get out of their hospital employment. The administrative salaries are out of proportion, and the doctor's salaries barely move upward. The whole concept that these are not patients that come for their care. These are customers. The person is a customer not a patient. The so-called term provider, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts, I hate the word provider. It dehumanizes doctors. It didn't say University of Illinois College of Providers School over the door. It said medical school. They're trying to somehow create a generic caregiving person, be it a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Now, we all take care of patients and we work well together, but provider really is insulting to those of us who went to medical school. Not a provider, doctor. A lot of times they have these so-called teams that make their rounds in the hospitals, these, these big corporate hospitals. Now, I had a very sad experience a few days before this recording. I lost my mother, 101 years of age, and she was admitted to a large, large, large hospital in the Midwest. Not even going to say which state it is, but it wasn't Michigan. Huge hospital. It took blocks and blocks and blocks of space, and they had all kinds of fancy garbage, fancy buildings, 
rooms and shiny floors, and, and they had teams that would make rounds on the patient. But no one was actually in charge. And my mom had had surgery, and she needed to be managed by the surgeon. Surgery, I learned in school, and it's true still, surgeons need to be very concerned with the nutrition of their patient, or they can't heal. They're in protein debt. They can't heal. Nobody was watching that. And when I went to visit her, I noticed there was a tray on the table in front of her, but she was too weak to feed herself. And no one else was feeding her. And then someone came in the room and took away the tray. And then a little later, someone else brought another tray in, which I and my sister, uh, when we were visiting her, would feed her. But there was nobody working there that was feeding the patient. And I was also really not impressed when I noticed that she had various lines in her and measuring urine output and all. And she had an IV, but no one was keeping track of her fluids. I had given her 300 cc's of water because she was constantly thirsty. She'd sip and sip and sip, and I kept track of how much fluid she took in. And I went out to the nurse, and I said, are you tracking INOs, intake and output? And she said, well, no. I said, well, I just gave her 300 cc's of water. You want to write that down somewhere? It was really unimpressive. And this was a place that is a huge so-called leading place in that state. So beware of teams. No one is in charge. Nobody's driving the school bus. I wasn't impressed. And the hospitalist was useless. She never even returned my calls, never came up to make rounds in the time I was there, an evening and a morning. It was pretty awful. and But I'm sure they had all kinds of surveys that they would send out after discharge. It was just BS, absolutely. So how did this come to be? Why did this happen? When I went into practice in 81, we borrowed money and start our practice. The bank was glad to lend it. They didn't care if I didn't have any uh, anything to back it up. They just lent us the money. They said, we never lost money on a doctor. And we borrowed money, opened our practice, and we learned the hard way. We were embezzled and all that in, in the first year out and almost went under. But we figured it out eventually. A few years later than that, some of the politicians, who I think are evil, started talking about socialized medicine back in the 80s. And HMOs started popping up all over, so-called health maintenance organizations. And they were pretty corrupt, in my opinion. They were trying to pit the specialists against the primary care doctors. They had incentives. They would pay the primary docs for not ordering certain tests and for not making referrals to specialists. And I remember even having a meeting with the head of one of the HMOs in Michigan in the mid-80s, and he had little charts like Ross Perot had, those little charts, and he was showing me their goals. And the one goal was to cut out specialty medicine and have the primary docs take over the role of people like neurologists, cardiologists, rheumatologists. This idiot seemed to think it was a really good idea that they could save a lot of money. But divide and conquer it was a, a principle. I think Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, great generals, uh, crazy horse when he divided up uh, Custer and, and, and General Crook's army. Divide and conquer is a very effective tactic. It's worked in healthcare. By coming up with HMOs, they were able to divide the doctors, primary versus specialist. In later years, they've been able to divide the doctors into employed versus private. The more you divide up doctors, the more you can control them. And as these doctors started panicking and selling their practices to hospitals because they thought any minute they're going to go social, it hasn't happened yet, at least as of this moment, September 21st, 2019. But the docs who sold their practices, most of them absolutely regretted it. All of a sudden, they've lost their autonomy. And these are docs that used to be in charge of their businesses, their practices. It's like selling your, uh, your, your small pharmacy to a large pharmacy chain. All of a sudden, someone else is telling you what to do. And these docs didn't like it either. Some of them resigned themselves to it. Others just retired. The physician shortage is probably going to be a lot worse than people predicted because they didn't take into account the unpleasantness. So people started selling their practices. The hospitals gained power. 
When I was originally in practice, hospitals had to please the doctors. In other words, if Hospital A didn't have a really good uh, service for, I don't know, intensive care, you would take your patients over to Hospital B until Hospital A cleaned up their act a little bit. We were the, you know, the conscience, so to speak. We were the determining factor. They couldn't control us. We would control the hospitals. We would send patients where they got the best care. Well, the hospitals figured, that's no good. Why can't we still get a lot of business? Even if we don't do so well, we have to control and own the primary doctor. And so they started doing this. Now, there are different kinds of conscience, you know. There's the kind your mom tells you about when you're a little kid. You look at the role models you had in medical school, and you look at your internal moral compass. The conscience in a hospital, sadly, is not the doctors. The conscience is the nursing group, the aggregate of nurses. Nurses are very dedicated, as we are supposed to be, and their work is a calling to them. Nurses, I don't know, maybe because I married one, and my daughter is one, and my sister-in-law is one, but nurses are special people. A good number of hospitals, the nursing organizations will sometimes flex their muscle to get the hospital to straighten out. For example, a lot of hospitals will tend to understaff the nurses just so there's more money to give to the executives. And of course, the nurses can threaten a strike. And then next thing you know, they've changed the patient-nurse ratio. Nurses are the conscience of the hospital and doctors are not anymore. So how did this nightmare happen? Well, like I said, we let them have control. So many physicians sold their practices and gave the hospital the power. And when the hospitals control primary care, of course, they could control patient flow to specialists. Some of them try to own specialists, but they don't always have to, as long as they can control the flow of patients. Docs that are newly in practice are very dependent upon referral. Those of us who have been out for a long time, we often do very well with word of mouth between patients. Otherwise, hospitals can control whether the ENT group is going to be busy or the cardiologist. They can control, basically, it's like being on a farm uphill from a competitor and you shut off the river with a dam and the people downstream are in trouble. It's kind of like that. It was the HMOs pitting the specialists against the primary, and then after that, it became the hospitals pitting themselves against the private. And to this day, they're eating up and, and trying to crush private practice. Now, the HMO, I got to share this anecdote. There was a really creepy doc a few a bunch of years ago who was a real whore to the HMOs, and he, he lived very, very well on all of his kickbacks he got for basically, he got points and incentives for not using specialists. Well, one day, this guy calls me up about an epilepsy patient, and he asked me about a drug, a very dangerous drug, which I think has been taken off the market since then, actually, one I never use. And he called and asked me what the doses were for this drug, because he was going to treat a really difficult seizure patient with it. And I said to him, well, if the patient's that difficult, maybe you should send him to a specialist. And he goes, nah, never mind. I'll look it up myself. And then click, he hung up. What a dirt ball. Anyway, if hospitals can control the flow by owning the doctors, the doctors don't have to be that good. They just have to be able to, to put out so much work per hour, per day, per month. And the credentials don't have to be so strict as they used to be. I had been on many credentials committees over the years where the medical staff decided who was good enough to have privileges at that hospital. This, this has changed a lot as well. Well, I do remain idealistic, even though I am cynical, and I guess I kind of transmit to you my cynicism, but I'm still idealistic. I think there has to be some way we can fix this. Don't know yet what it's going to be. So think about it. The National Academy of Medicine did a, a survey, and they also came up with some advice and some observations. They pointed out that silence is the way many doctors survive their employment. Now, someone like me is unemployable. I would complain if someone did a bad job on an x-ray, I would complain to the head of the department and say, you know, Joe Blow isn't good enough. Don't let him ever read any more of my x-rays ever again. But then you'd be a troublemaker. You'd not be a team player. Those kinds of people like to say to you, you know, there's no I in team. 
And of course, my response always is, yes, but there's an I in idiot. So people that are afraid to complain if a service is bad, the squeaky wheel gets replaced. So you, you won't see improvement happening internally. The private people can let their complaints be translated into not referring things to that particular hospital, which, by the way, I do this all the time. But then we look at the poor nurses. They're being stretched so tight and to the limits of their ethics. The understaffing makes the nurses not be able to do what they want to do with the patients. And just like doctor-patient relationships are emotional and compassionate, or should be, so it is with nursing. Nurses stay at bedside with patients. They talk to them. They help them get through the stresses and the horribleness of being a patient in a hospital with some life-threatening illness. But they're not able to now. They try to run in when they can. And like I said, I have so much respect for nurses. And they're being stretched tighter than, as the saying goes, tighter than a gnat's butt over a bed bathtub. They may not answer the call lights as quickly as people like, and people complain about the nurses, but it's not the nurses' fault. It's that there aren't enough of them that are being hired. And these administrative salaries are huge. If you took that 30 or $40 million a year that goes to one person and even chop it in half, that's a lot of nursing positions. Anyway, what are we going to do about it? Well, you, the listener, probably can't do anything about it, nor can I, except my way of doing something about it is to try to get everybody angry by listening to my podcasts. But the individual patient needs to worry about themselves and your survival. There's two kinds of medicine out there. There's the incompetent corporate side, and again, there are exceptions, and there's the greedy private side with, again, a lot of exceptions. I would say the majority of private docs are not greedy and crooked, but we all know who they are. Beware of both extremes. There are still some really good people out there in primary care and in specialty medicine. The trick is, how do you find them? And this is the hard part of this talk right now. It's not easy, especially in certain geographic rural locations where there might be a monopoly and you might not even have any private doc or any really high-quality doc at these remote locations. There might be just corporate drones. Now, to find a good doc, basically what you need to look for is someone who's well-trained, who's got good credentials, and on your interaction with them, that they seem to give a damn about you and that they spend time with you and they want to know how you tick, not just, oh, so your butt hurts, here's a butt pill. You know, there's more important things. They have to help you work around corporate BS. For example, in our in our clinic, we, uh, we need certain meds or tests and we have to fight with the insurance companies, but we'll do it. It takes staff time to do it, but we do it. And your doc that you see, whoever it's going to be, specialty or primary, they need to also be able to do that for you. And if you need to be sent to a better place than where they are working, they need to not be afraid to send you there. Your doctor has to look at the whole patient even a cardiologist who worries about that accessory organ called the heart, they still need to know that you're, whether you're diabetic or whether you have any other problems, they got to know this. We all need to know that. And they need to let you know that they're aware of the whole patient. They don't have to know the exquisite details of things outside of their specialty, but they sure as hell need to be aware of it. I'm, of course, biased towards private medicine and not corporate medicine, but beware of private patient mills. There are certain docs out there who run a mill. They see people in very, very brief visits. They happen to have a lot of testing on site. Oh, look, you just wheezed. Come on to the next room. We'll do a lung test. Or your eye just twitched. Let's do an EMG or an EEG. These are scary and they're awful, need to be avoided. Always avoid people that are trying to sell you supplements or vitamins in their office. But they're trying to sell supplements or vitamins. That can't be ethical. I'm sorry. Look at their web page. To me, anyway, and again, I'm a cynic, you know, hence <laughs> this whole thing. I'm a cynic. But if their web page for a doctor has testimonials on it, you got to think twice about that one. Or if they look like they're being sponsored by some uh, drug company or something, not a good thing. 
a good doctor knows the term, I don't know. I mean, even as a specialist, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know, but we know where to send them. And I'll say to somebody, look, you know, this MS is pretty advanced. I think uh, I need to have you see a neuroimmunologist. I'll refer them. A bad doc is going to keep hand- trying to handle everything constantly, one after another. They'll try to keep throwing stuff at the patient and hope they're getting better and keep throwing stuff until something sticks. That's bad. I don't know. You know, it, it's funny how things are going. It's funny that a lot of my patients, I'll ask them, what's the name of your primary doctor? And they don't know the name. They never met them. They maybe see their NP or PA, you know, nurse practitioner or physician assistant, which is great. I have wonderful PA and wonderful nurse practitioner working in my office, but we have a relationship. Always, I have a relationship with the patient. And, you know, once people start getting stabilized, uh, you know, we, we let the NP and PA manage them and they're sharp. They miss nothing. But we're a team. Now, in places where it's not really a team, but you never see so-called supervising doc, but you've never met them, that's that's not ideal medicine. You need to have a relationship with the doctor and patient as well as between the patient and the nurse practitioner or physician assistant. There's a reason why we spend all those years in training and we need to be able to use that training when we meet patients. So what are you going to do? How are you going to find somebody? Well, that's a tough one. Best thing to do is find a nurse and ask who they go to. Nurses can see through the BS pretty well. And nurses that work in hospitals, they know who the jackass doctors are. Basically, ask a nurse. But you can't. You just moved into town. You don't know anybody in the medical field. People go online. They look at, uh, you know, various websites. They look at, I don't know, like these evaluation sites, you know, the, these uh, rating sites and such, which, you know, maybe pretty good. I don't know. I kind of like the ratings I've been getting. But I, I think when you, when you see a doc and they have five people and, and all five of them made them a five-star doc, they probably come from a family of five people. The only believable ratings are probably the ones where you have many, many, many entries because then it averages out and there got to be somebody who don't like you. I mean, it's inevitable. Like if you're someone comes in the door and they're a drug addict and you say no, they're going to write something bad about you. Or if someone doesn't pay their bills and you send them to collection, they're going to write something bad about you on, on the evaluations. So you got to take that into account. But if you read the evaluations, look at how crazy some of the evaluations are. The ones that are negative, if they sound kind of crazy, they probably are. The good ones, if they sound overly drippy, honey-like, then maybe you have to wonder whether that's their mom or dad. But if there's a lot of entry, then that tells you, it gives you some idea. But it doesn't tell you if they're credentialed or not. Now, on a previous podcast, I gave you the, the American Board of Medical Specialties uh, link, which is on the webpage, you know, the uh, the cynicaldoctor.com. A place to find a doc from scratch, you could try the AMA Doctor Finder, and it's a big long URL, but it's on the website. It's, you know, AMA Doctor Finder. If you just Google that, you'll probably find it. But it has two sets of docs in there, those that are members and those that are not members of the AMA. I'm a member, but it's no honor. It's just I pay dues. It doesn't make me smarter or better credentialed. So when you look at the uh, choices in there, you can look at the, those who are members and not members of the AMA. They, they list every doctor and they should be listing also whether they're board certified or not. So you pick a geographic region and you look at the names of the docs. You might want to check their evaluations online. You can always check. Every state has a a resource by which you can look up whether somebody's been dinged, whether they've had any licensure issues, whether they've been in trouble with the law, whatever. You can look all these things up. So bottom line, I think we need to break up big corporate medicine and we need to make the patients much more cynical and better advocates for their own health care. Maybe this is my therapy by making these podcasts. This is maybe how I cope with the idiocy of the system. But I like to think I'm helping the listener be a little more demanding of their medical care. Why should you not get good care? 
Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. There'll be more in the series, so please subscribe to us. And if you don't hate me too badly, rate us with five stars so we show up more easily on searches. It helps spread the word to protect patients from scammers. I hope this episode was helpful. Please subscribe to our podcast channel to get more information and future broadcasts. You can also get to us through www.thehedachesituation.com. Thanks for listening.